You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McClendon, and I'm ready for a rousing round of Auld Lang Syne tonight, Wade. You know, Kevin, I'm excited because I feel like our podcast is going to have 2020 vision. For at least the next 365 days. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Of course. Listeners, today we begin our episode by talking about the new Greta Gerwig picture, Little Women. And then we're going to spend some time with Adam Sandler in his new starring role in the Safdie Brothers' new film, Uncut Gems. Hopefully, there'll be some high-quality H2O. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 231 of Seeing and Believing. I just, I just feel, I just feel like women, they, they have minds and they have souls as well as just hearts and they've got ambition and they've got talent as well as just beauty and I'm so sick of people saying that that love is just all a woman is fit for. I'm so sick of it. But I'm, I'm so lonely. Yes, we are here with episode 231 of Seeing and Believing. Kevin, I'm excited because this is our last episode before our big top 10 films of 2019 episode. And we're we're really kind of digging in to some of the last bigger films that we haven't covered from 2019. And so we're just going to get these out of the way and fully dive into our top 10 next week. Yeah, and I I guess we shouldn't say we're getting them out of the way because there's a very real possibility that some of these movies we're going to be talking about uh, in the next little bit will be uh, contenders for that uh, th- those top ten lists, that top ten episodes. So the possibility space is is boundless, Wade. It's boundless. I I think any top ten list of 2019 has to at least consider or think about these films because they are just kind of showing up all over the place. You're you're going to be hard pressed to look at somebody's top ten and not find either little women or uncut gems because they're kind of they're just they're everywhere they're all over the place and and of course cats i mean that is <laughs> we're we're not actually going to be discussing cats on this episode but it's not outside the realm of possibility that that could be in our top 10 episode wade i just want to put that out there mm-hmm. like i said the possibility space is endless i would say too we've got some great patreon supporters If all of them banded together and they were like, we want a review of Cats, then I I would review it sometime during the year if they all wanted it. I don't know if that's what people want, but I'm open to it. I mean, there was that one time where uh, our our listeners in a Twitter poll, I think, made us watch the uh, the Last Witch Hunter, oh, that, that Vin yeah. Diesel fantasy actioner. So, I feel like our listeners do have a history of showing their sadistic side. So, I I mean, now that we've said that out loud, I think that they are probably going to do something like that to us. Wait, I can feel it in my bones. Okay, so listeners. And Patreon supporters, if you push hard enough, we will break. So you can do that on Twitter, through email. Maybe literally. <laughs> we will break. Uh, I, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. But we are open to that. 
Nevertheless, 2020 begins in a big way, Kevin, because we're going to be talking about a group of little women. And it took me a while to figure out that line, but I got that in there. Here's the film's (laughs) official synopsis. Writer-director Greta Gerwig has crafted a Little Women adaptation that draws on both the classic novel and the writings of Louisa May Alcott and unfolds as the author's alter ego, Joe March, reflects back and forth on her fictional life. In Gerwig's take, the beloved story of the March sisters, four young women each determined to live life on their own terms, is both timeless and timely. Portraying Joe, Meg, Amy, and Beth March, the film stars Saoirse Ronan, Emma Watson, Florence Pugh, and Eliza Scanlon, with Timothy Charlemagne as their neighbor Lori, Laura Dern as Marmee, and Meryl Streep as Aunt March. Kevin, both of us appreciated Gerwig's previous film, Lady Bird. It even made my top 10 list of 2017. This project, however, sees Gerwig stretching her muscles by tackling a beloved piece of literature, which has itself spawned a number of film adaptations already. My question to you to get us started is this. After watching Little Women, do you see this as a step forward for Gerwig? Or possibly a retreat from her fantastic Ladybird. Yeah, well, we both really liked Ladybird quite a bit, so that's a, a tall order to fill for sure. But I, I'm going to say it right now, Wade. Here at the outset, I think this is an even better film than than Ladybird. I liked it quite a bit. I think it's it's an I I'll, I'll say right off the bat that I haven't read Little Women, so my opinions on how faithful of an adaptation of it, I, I just. I can't speak to that. I do think that it does some interesting things uh, with its own status as an adaptation that I think really set it apart from other literary adaptations that we've recently seen. It gets a little bit meta, especially towards the end. And I think that Gerwig's approach in doing that is very thought-provoking and doesn't just... It isn't just a kind of nice little uh, trick that she she pulls for people in the know. It also helps enrich the adaptation itself. the The story itself is is made more uh, rich by the way that Gerwig kind of maybe deconstructs it a little bit and and looks at not just the the narrative of the Little Women, but also the author that kind of brought that narrative to life in in her book. So I think that's just a really intriguing ingredient. But even that all aside, I think this is just a really sturdy literary adaptation with excellent performances that I just had a really good time with. So I'm I'm all aboard the, the Gerwig train, Wade. Uh, <laughs> I am curious to know what your take is, though. Yeah, well, I'm not going to choose between this film and Lady Bird because I have two children and I don't choose... You know, which one I like more between them. Uh, no, I, I like this film. I like this film a lot. And Kevin, I mentioned that I watched the 1994 adaptation, I don't know, a month, two months ago. And I enjoyed that. I think this one's better. I haven't read the book. But I, I think Gerwig approaches this project. almost. It's almost as if she knows, okay, most of the people who are going to watch this film are going to be familiar with the story. And so... It's not as if she tells a different story, but she finds a different way to organize and present 
that story. And for one, I, I think the probably the biggest change is, is maybe that meta quality that you talked about. And then also this cutting back and forth between the past, the present, and the future, just kind of mixing all of those ingredients in one. And that works to highlight some of the themes that this material is is trying to get across, particularly nostalgia, growing up, family relationships, as well as ambition, particularly for these sisters. And so Gerwig is giving us a different presentation. And as a result, I'm seeing I'm seeing ideas in the material that didn't stand out to me whenever I watched the 1994 version. And like I said, this is just me talking about the 1994 version. And one in particular, and I'll give kind of an example of this. There is a death in this movie, and it's a pretty big death. And rather than looking at this sickness, hey, there's part one of this sickness, time passes, and then there's part two of this sickness, Gerwig mixes part one and two together. So we're kind of cutting from one back and forth. And it's as if, like I mentioned, she realizes, hey, most of the audience already knows what's going to happen. But by doing that, she not only gives herself an opportunity to highlight some visual cues that just kind of punches the emotion through a little bit stronger, but in addition, she helps to highlight the themes of nostalgia, the themes of death, and particularly the idea that we face these trials when we're young, and when we reach adulthood, it's not as if we, we arrive, but we still face these problems, we still face these issues, and we can look back at the past and look back at the joy of the past, but also look back in sadness. And it's just the way she presents that that I think just works so well, and I think that's one of the the best qualities of of this film. I'm glad you brought up that uh, that structure to this film because I think that's the other really uh, big innovation that Gerwig brings to this particular adaptation. Uh, the The other adaptation of Little Women that I've seen, the 1994 version, is pretty linear, right? Like it begins at a a, a starting point and it ends at an ending point. It's all it's all chronological, pretty much. The innovation in this film is that Gerwig kind of cuts between kind of the, the the early life of the main characters and the their later life after they get married or they go their their own separate ways and by cross-cutting between those two she draws out certain resonances in the narrative that at least I had never noticed there before I'm not sure that um, they were necessarily resonances that Alcott herself intended, but Gerwig finds those those little parallels that both increase the poignance of the earlier scenes where the characters are all young, and also increases the the poignance of the scene where they've kind of gone their their own separate ways. I feel like at least with the 1994 version, the the interesting character is basically Joe, right? Like she's she's obviously the the protagonist. She's sort of the point of view character. She's uh, played by Winona Ryder, who at the time was pretty much the biggest star in the film, and so we're kind of just naturally led to identify with her the most. I think Gerwig's adaptation, by contrast, really brings home the 
the humanity and uh, fascinating qualities of all the sisters, which is not something that I feel like is, is often foregrounded. I said I'd never really read the book, but I do kind of listen in on the conversations of my friends who have. And I do feel like there's kind of this sense that Amy is the sister that everyone kind of likes to hate, right? Like she's she's the the most self-consciously feminine of the sisters. She has that famous uh, betrayal of Joe where she burns this manuscript that Joe's been working on <laughs> as a way to, to get back at her. And uh, in the 1994 adaptation, and from what I gather in the book, it's sort of like Amy is sort of, she's the sister that is unsympathetic. She's the one that, if there is a villain in the story, she's kind of like a villain, or at least she fills that role for part of the narrative. Gerwig's adaptation and Florence Pugh's incredible performance, I think Florence Pugh is maybe the the highlight of a, a just an excellent cast. I think... They do so well at not just humanizing Amy, but also really understanding her in a way that the character is kind of not understood in in, in most other discussions surrounding the the work and the other adaptations. And I think that kind of spirit of compassion, you, you, you can tell that this is a Gerwig film. It harks back to that uh, really famous line from Lady Bird where... Uh, Lady Bird is having that conversation with the nun, and the nun asks her, don't you think it's the same, love and attention? Don't you think that paying attention to something is the same as loving it? And I think you really see that uh, value in action in Gerwig's choices with this adaptation because she doesn't just present all of these characters as sort of supporting characters in Joe's story. It's more like she really takes the time to dig into the choices that all of these protagonists make and she comes to understand them and she doesn't judge them or present them as perhaps less worthy than Joe's more independent nature. And I think that that not only does it make Joe's journey itself more rich, but I think it makes the the world of the film feel more rich because these aren't just supporting characters in a protagonist story. They're all the protagonists of their own story, and Gerwig's adaptation manages to to portray it in that way. Yeah, and, and I think what happens with that is you do have four different individuals who choose four different paths. And if this is a film that's that's speaking to womanhood, it allows for room in how individuals take on that role. And so Priscilla and I, we watched this together, had a screener for it, and she appreciated uh, the scene with Emma Watson's character, Meg, where she talks about how, you you know, my, my dream isn't to go off and to travel and to start a career. I really, I love this person. I want to get married and I want to have children. And Rather than that kind of being just a line, we see that kind of play out. And she has this this beautiful moment with her husband later on in the film. And, And we do get the sense with each of these different stories that they've all chosen their own path. And it's all different. And it brings them happiness and trial in their own way. And they must 
fight the difficulties that come with that path, but also celebrate some of the joys that come with that path. And two, because they were able to highlight that, we see some nuances in these relationships. And you kind of pointed out Amy's character. And what I love about Florence Pugh's performance, as well as her interactions with Saoirse Ronan, is we, we get this like little tension that that siblings often have. And we see that kind of spread in a big way when she when she burns this this novel. But we we follow that tension over the years. And it's it's just kind of a it's barely even discernible. But we get this like, okay, th- these sisters love each other, they care about each other, but they kind of rub each other the wrong way. And then we get these beautiful moments where where they get past that, where it transcends that, and their relationship is strong despite that. And I, I really do appreciate that because that's not always easy to portray. It's easy to say, oh, these individuals have a great relationship or these individuals are always at each other's throat, but somehow they make it through. I think the reality of it is with a lot of siblings is there are these rough edges that just kind of rub you and maybe that doesn't always come to the surface. Maybe it does. And that film highlights that, but then also highlights the love and just the rapport that these characters have, just the dialogue kind of going back and forth. They almost know how to respond to what their sister says before their sister actually finishes saying it. And I think that highlights just kind of this great dynamic within within sibling relationships. There's a little bit of Robert Altman DNA in the way ah. that Gerwig mm-hmm. has written and and shot those scenes where the the little house where they're all living, you know, they're they're getting ready for a meal or they're preparing a play and they're talking over each other and the frame is just so full of life and that's that's something that that Altman liked to do is this overlapping dialogue in you know in real life people don't sit and wait for each other to finish talking they interrupt each other they talk over each other and that gives it a a spontaneity his films gives them a spontaneity that maybe more meticulously shot and constructed dialogue scenes often don't have and gerwig really understands that and infuses that spirit into this film as well. And I just, I love those scenes where it's just the four, the four daughters, you know, bickering with each other as they're setting the table. And, you know, one of them like pokes the other one for no good reason. It just, it feels very lived in. And it feels like a very, like you said, a very real sibling dynamic instead of having easily discernible sympathetic siblings and unsympathetic siblings. They're all just people and they bounce off of each other and get it, get it on each other's nerves but that doesn't change the fact that they are family and they do genuinely care for each other. And I think Gerwig's ability to capture that really speaks well to our abilities, both as a writer and as a director. Yeah. And so I, you know, I have three, I have three brothers. I have two older sisters, but three brothers were, we always hung out as brothers. And when we were talking about Lady Bird, we mentioned that, Hey, our lives were kind of very different from, from this character's life, but there were things that, that connected with us. And I think here, just just this relationship, these relationships and, and how they're kind of portrayed really connected with me. And you know, I just remember being bored with my brothers and just, yeah, like you said, just messing with each other, poking each other for no reason at all. Uh, we put on plays and productions and things like that, uh, like the sisters here. And you just, you get the sense that 
the sibling type relationships, while they vary from from gender uh, to gender and and time to time, um, their time across time is is there, there's these dynamics that all kind of stay the same, and and we can we can relate to that. I also appreciate too the the cinematography and the way that Gerwig lights these scenes uh, using. Uh, windows from the outside as well as candlelight it just it's vibrant and it's beautiful and the cinematography and the color tones change from the childhood scenes to the adult scenes and and we also kind of get the sense that Gerwig is speaking to memory and to nostalgia because the scenes when they're children uh, or young adults are are very vibrant they're very warm Whereas the adult scenes are, are colder. And at one point, Joe's character says, I miss everything. And she's speaking about the past. And, and it's really kind of dealing with that nostalgia. And when times were good, but then also we realized that times weren't always good during their childhood. It's set during the Civil War. Uh, and just the way that, that Gerwig plays with that, and, and she doesn't, she doesn't cram it down our throats, but we get the sense that when we look back, we remember things differently than the way they were. But at the same time, things were maybe simpler back then because we were children and because we were young adults versus now as adults. So I, I just really appreciate kind of all this dynamic weaving its way throughout the story. Yeah, the the nostalgia you're talking about is almost of a piece for me with what I was talking about earlier about the the way that Gerwig has a perspective on these different characters and their different choices and not really trying to say that that one is better than the other in the same way the way that she evokes the you know the a little bit idealized version of the past in these warmly lit scenes versus the uh, cooler color palette that she has in the modern day scenes it's not to suggest that one is more real than the other or one is uh better than the other like the idealized version it feels as if the characters are maybe a little bit happier but also it's we we as the audience understand that it is a little bit idealized and that Alcott in writing Little Women often idealized some aspects of her own life that were a little bit difficult and that she didn't want to really portray in their in their full difficulty because that's not the story that she really wanted to tell. And this is where that that meta element comes in because in addition to kind of portraying both the idealized nostalgia and the cold heart reality as both being integral to kind of just lived experience, Gerwig also uses this to explore the compromises that everyone finds themselves obliged to make as they get older. When you're younger, you know, you can afford to be a you know, impetuous and and principled, and we see that in Joe's character, where she she has a very she has a certain opinion about herself and the way her life should go, and she doesn't want to give that up for any anyone or anything. In the scenes where uh, we're uh, farther in the future and she's a little bit older, there's that cooler color palette. She finds that well, maybe she does want things that are different from when she was younger. Maybe she 
does find herself obliged to change her writing because that's what's going to sell. You know, people want to publish and read stories that are different from maybe what she originally wanted to write. And there's that ambivalence in the compromises that she finds herself uh, obliged to make both in her writing and in her relationships that I think is... Again, it, it really feels of a piece with Ladybird in that we have Ladybird, the character, as this, you know, this teenager who sees things in a very, very particular, very passionate way. And then we have her mother who's set up as a foil who just has a different perspective on life because she's lived for longer. And I think Gerwig's ability to bring that element into a literary adaptation, essentially telling somebody else's story, uh, I, I think that's kind of almost an ideal of what adaptation can be, telling somebody else's story but putting your own spin on it. And I think Gerwig just succeeds with flying colors with this. Yeah, and just the theme that's highlighted in Lady Bird is the idea that sometimes when we leave and when we go off in life, we're drawn back to the past. And there's that that scene at the end of Ladybird where she where she goes back to that church in New York and it reminds her of her upbringing. And we, we, we get this here too, this this sense that these characters find hope in, in coming back home and some of the answers to their problems, uh, they're actually closer than they realized. And we get this very sunny ending and we're forced to sort of reconcile the meta aspect to what we're actually seeing on screen but there is this yearning for unity this yearning for happy endings in the movie because these characters who've all kind of gone their separate ways they have the opportunity to come back and use their unique giftings to help other people. And I found that to be pretty inspiring, as well as these, these little touches of, of grace. Uh, of course, uh, the father, the patriarch, he is, uh, I believe he's a chaplain in the Union Army. He is a minister. And the family definitely lives that type of faith out to the world, even when consequences do come, but they are very loving. We get some great little scenes with Laura Dern's character, uh, one where she gives away an item of her clothing to someone in need. And it's just a short scene, but it's, it's amazing. And then there's this subplot that involves Mr. Lawrence, who's played by Chris Cooper, uh, who has another great role in addition to A uh, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. And he has lost someone close to him. And he just, he listens, he enjoys listening to Beth March play the piano. And just, just to let him listen and to watch him listen. To just, I don't know, they're just amazing. It's just amazing to watch some of these small scenes that happen in this kind of bigger story. And um, it really is just, a, I, I think, a really wonderful picture. Yeah, the, those moments of grace also are they 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 feel integral to the spirit of Alcott's work. I've seen some complaints somewhere that Gerwig in adapting Alcott's novel 
kind of dials back a little bit on some of the explicit Christianity of the characters. And I can understand that, but I, I watch scenes like the ones you describe or the uh, sequence where Marmy convinces the sisters to share, to, to give up their, their nice cozy Christmas breakfast and share it with uh, a poor family who lives nearby. And that moment is, it's positioned as a moment of specifically Christian charity. But what I, I like about it is Gerwig's ability to both present it as something that's aspirational, that's very good for them to do, but also show that it is difficult for uh, these these girls to to really will themselves to carry that charity through cheerfully. And that is... Gerwig's way of showing that there are these moments of grace, but they don't come without a cost. It's not, uh, to use Bonhoeffer's phrase, cheap grace. Uh, and in its own way, I think that that really makes this a, a very a very spiritual film in the way that it shows these characters both uh, experiencing kind of the warm glow of, of showing grace to others, but also reckoning with the costs of that in the same way that Joe has to reckon with the costs of maybe altering the uh, the work that she's that she's writing in order to appeal to audiences. It's just a, a wonderfully complex note for her to put into this story, and it also maybe invites the audience ourselves to reckon with what we want out of stories and. What, how we react to stories that maybe aren't as tidy as we want them to be. I think that Gerwig's ability to suggest all of these things without necessarily being too on the nose on it is is really marvelous. Yeah, and there's that one scene. Now, uh, you mentioned the, the Christmas Day charity scene, and they're leaving their house to go bring these items to other people, and they walk past the church, and it looks like people are kind of coming out of a service. And it's this interesting kind of composition where these girls are going out to serve the poor, but they're walking right by the church to do it. And you can kind of take that as you will, what Gerwig is trying to say about Christianity or the faith. At the very least, it is sort of this compelling image that asks us to consider, well, what is true charity? What is true religion? And how does that look and how does that play out? Is it within just the walls, or does it involve more? Does it involve uh, sacrifice? A lot of other things that we could mention with this film, one thing we do need to talk about before we head out of this segment is Timothy Chalamet. Uh, what do you think about his performance as as Teddy here, as Laurie? I, I, he's fine. I think that if there were one performance that I was kind of iffy on in this film, it might have been his simply because... There's, I feel like Chalamet is maybe less successful when he is in a period piece. He feels like a very modern screen presence. When I see him on screen in this film, I do kind of see almost the same character that he plays in Lady Bird, where he's, you know, that that cool boyfriend who's obviously he's more a more sympathetic character in this film than he was in that film. But there's just, there's a, a certain modern quality to him that I I'm not sure is entirely in keeping with the the rest of the film but I mean he's he's fine I think he does get some a really 
great moment in the back half of the film where he has to sort of grapple with what he thought his his life should be or or the the person whom he thought he would marry and finding himself in a much different place than he expected to be which is very much in keeping with the character arcs of the rest of the characters in this film so i appreciate him i i don't know that i i loved him in it though but uh i am curious to know since you brought it up uh what your reaction to him was you know i i brought it up because you know i i think we have to answer the questions of the people uh i don't know if i have a better <laughs> response than you i thought he was fine i mean i, I thought he did a, a fine job um I probably prefer Christian Bale in that role if we're just talking a lot about the 1994 adaptation. But I, I don't, I don't think he does anything to detract from the movie. Um, at times, I think he he does a fine job. There's one conversation that he has with Emma Watson's character at this uh, this ball uh, that I think is very good. But other than that, yeah, I, I I think he's I think he's okay. Listeners, we'd love to get your thoughts on his performance as well as the rest of the film. Make sure to reach out if you've seen Little Women. You can tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Kevin, we'll see if this shows up again next week during our Top 10 of 2019 podcast. Who knows? I'm not going to give anything away. Who knows? everyone who's taken an opportunity to support our podcast through patreon it really is so helpful to us kind of keeps us going so we are thankful for that listeners if you'd like to support us on patreon there are a number of different levels of donation one of those it's one of our favorites is called the what can you buy for five dollar level and kevin i wanted to ask you that question what could someone hypothetically buy for five bucks Five bucks would buy you non-stick glitter, which, in my opinion, is a steal. <laughs> wow. That would change the course of our country, Kevin, if we could have non-stick glitter. I feel like it would. I don't know what your feelings are about glitter, Wade, but I hate it. I hate it with every fiber of my being, and I don't want it anywhere near me because it's it's like sand as the wise man once said, I don't like sand. It gets in everything. I don't like glitter, Wade. It gets in everything. It's really annoying. Yeah. I, I would pay I would mm. pay $5 in a heartbeat for glitter that would just <laughs> sort of 
be tidy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm definitely on the anti-glitter train as well. So there's that. Hopefully one day, if we can send a man on the moon, we can we can invent non-sticky glitter. Uh, but until then, you can become a member of our Patreon page, the What Can You Buy for $5 level. And Kevin, I've got to just tell a, a short story here. So my family was, we have this group chat with my family. There's a lot of people in it. And we did this white elephant exchange over Christmas. One of the prizes, the best prize was literally a $5 bill. And throughout like talking about this, I made a joke about what can you buy for $5? And nobody in my family knew what I was referring to. And I came to the sad realization, I don't know if my family listens to the podcast. So I I don't know. Go on. It hurt. No, it hurt. It hurt. Uh, <laughs> but that's the end of the story. <laughs> oh, now I, I feel compelled to come to your family's defense, Wade. I'm sure that they, they listen to the show, but they are probably like 90% of our listeners and just skip over the middle segments. <laughs> So it might just be that that's just a you know the, okay. the the joke they don't get because they they don't want to listen to the the five dollars a month segment which is fine that is that is a choice that mm. is perfectly valid and especially in the interest of Christmas harmony I feel mm-hmm. like you need to you need to be okay with that Wade yeah I say that as as a friend. You just you need to you need to let it go as another wise person once <laughs> as said. another wise. Well, you know what? It's their loss because a lot of good jokes happen in this segment. A lot of just oh, spontaneity. Yeah, just cool stuff happens. I appreciate the compliment for the random things that I just let come out of my mouth every single week. Listeners, you can, of course, uh, give to our Patreon campaign $5 or more. Uh, as we just described, you can also spend $5 to become a Christ and Pop Culture member that gets you access to our member offerings as well as to the members-only forum on Facebook. It also goes to support great writing and other content that goes up on the site. The last few days have been uh, really interesting to, to read on the site, Wade. We've been doing our faves of the decade over the last few days on ChristandPopCulture.com. There are various articles about our TV and film favorites, our music favorites, what we've been reading and playing over the last decade that we've really loved, and Happenings, which uh, I have not read, but I understand that there is a whole range of things that have been picked for that one in particular. So if you are looking for more best of the decade content in your life, then we've got you covered on ChristPopCulture.com. And it doesn't cost you anything to read, but if you want to support it, $5 a month to become a Capca member would also be greatly appreciated. Yes, definitely check that out at ChristPopCulture.com forward slash subscribe once again thank you to everyone who's supporting the podcast whether that is through christ and pop culture or our patreon campaign another way to support the podcast is simply by rating and reviewing us on itunes it's really easy just search seeing and believing click on our tab and then give us a star rating a short review everything is much appreciated How's it going? How's it going? Good Pesach out. All right, Larry, you're a Jew again. Welcome back.
Take a crazy risk to gamble. And it's about to pay off. So I want the Celtics to cover. I want the Celtics halftime. I want Garnett points and rebounds. What do you know? I don't know. I just know. Well, I'll tell you what I know. That's the dumbest bet I ever heard of. I disagree. I disagree, Gary. So we're recording this episode just before New Year's, but because of the uh, the quirks of our release schedule, it's actually going to be airing after the new year has already begun. First, Wade, happy new year. Second, I am wondering if you have any resolutions that you're planning to make now that you are likely to have broken by the time this episode goes live. <laughs> um, probably eat healthy. I feel like that's a resolution that I have all the time or eat healthier. But uh-huh. I would assume by the time this goes live, I would have already had something from a fast food restaurant, whatever that is. So that's one. Kevin, what about you? Uh, my it, Mine for this year, I've got a few. Uh, a couple of them I'm not going to share because I want to keep them a secret in case I fail. <laughs> But the the one that I am going to uh, be trying to live out the next year is uh, being more disciplined. I'm a very undisciplined person by nature, and so I'm just going to try to uh, just build better habits and stick to them and uh, work harder and just essentially be a more functional adult. That is sort of what I'm hoping for for 2020. We'll see if I actually keep that past the uh, the the first week of the year. Uh, so I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I'm cautious for a reason. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's always being more responsible. is a good resolution that all of us should have. I will say this. I am running a marathon two weeks from today. And so that is, Whoa. that is the goal that I want to accomplish in 2019. And it, I've been training for a long time, so hopefully that goal is accomplished in two weeks. If not, I'm going to be really sad. <laughs> but oh, okay, well, you, you know, if if you actually are going to be running a marathon in the first month of the year, then I think that that by the laws and statutes of New Year's Eve, I think that frees you from all obligations to fulfill any other New Year's resolutions. Okay. So you're in luck. Yes. <laughs> Not that I was going to fulfill any others anyway, but it's nice to have a pass. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Regardless, however, of how well our resolutions go, chances are that neither of our lives are going to go as far off the rail as Howard Ratner's, the main character of Josh and Minnie Safdie's new film, Uncut Gems. Howard, played by Adam Sandler, is a jeweler in New York City's Diamond District who, like a lot of Sandler characters, has absolutely no self-control. Howard is a compulsive gambler who is constantly hustling to dodge or cheat his creditors while betting big on his next big score. He's almost constantly improvising, fast-talking, or badgering other people in order to stay one step ahead of the ruin constantly hanging over his head. The film opens with him acquiring a valuable gemstone on the black market and using it as a key ingredient in his scheme to pay off his debts, schmooze basketball player Kevin Garnett, played here by himself, and win big. Whether he'll actually pull it off 
or get buried by his collapsing life is the tension that the Safdie brothers find throughout the film. Wade, Uncut Gems has a lot in common, just from that description, with their previous film, Good Time. Uh, Both films have just this breakneck pacing and tell the story of a person constantly trying to stay one step ahead of karma and the law. My question for you is, what did you think of that previous film, and how do you think that this current film takes those themes and runs with them? Yeah, well, it's it's a little ironic that Good Time is called Good Time because I wouldn't say that that film is a good time. Uh, It's kind of stressful. But... I really did like that film. In Uncut Gems, uh, I didn't have a good time. That doesn't mean it's a bad movie. That doesn't mean uh, it's it's not even a a very good film. It just means it's it's kind of difficult to watch a character make really bad decisions for two hours and 15 minutes uh, and just hope that somehow he redeems himself and he, he gets out of this... I, I, I don't even want to say jam because he's he's in more than one. He's in a lot of jams, and we don't even know how many jams he's in because just randomly people will come up to him in the street and say, "Hey, you owe me money." Um, <laughs> so I think this film is way is is made so well. I think Adam Sandler does such a fantastic job here. But yeah, I I would say that I I I thought this was a very good one. It's it's just a little it's a little tough to watch sometimes, and I think. I think different types of people are going to enjoy it in different ways, uh, but you got it. You got to give it to the Safdie brothers. I mean, they know how to create an experience, and I think that's the best way to describe this movie as as an experience. That's that is a good way to describe kind of maybe their their whole aesthetic. A, a funny story before I kind of talk about the film itself. I, I saw this film at a at a press screening where the Safties were actually they did a Q and A afterwards. Oh wow! And and the uh, so so they were kind of sitting in those in those you know bar bar height folding chairs that you often see at, at these Q and A events. Uh, they, they each had their own chair. And of course the moderator had a third one. And for some reason, uh, Benny's chair was a little rickety. There was something wrong with it and it looked on, on, it was wobbling and on the verge of collapse. And so the moderator was offering, like, do you want us to, to get you another chair? We totally can. We've got one right here. It's no problem. And and he was like, no, 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 no. I, I just kind of want to see if it's actually going to make it through this entire, uh, Q and (laughs) a. And so the entire time that they were answering questions and telling stories about the production, as you know, sitting in the audience watching it, you were you were always just there was this little bit of tension. Like, is he actually going to? Is his chair going to fall apart? And is he just going to fall on his butt in front of all of us? Is he going to get hurt? It, it was just it was it was the most singular Q and A experience I ever had. And what the a reason metaphor. I bring it up, <laughs> right? The reason I bring it up is it's a, what that experience of that Q and A is a lot like the experience of watching a Safdie Brothers film. You're always on the edge of your seat wondering, like, is this going to be the moment where everything crashes down? Is this going to be the time when disaster strikes and which all and when all of the characters' uh, terrible choices come back and finally bite him? Because you know it's going to happen. You just don't know. Go- you just don't know when and how it's going to happen. And I think that. That's in both Good Time and in Uncut Gems. And I'm actually a little bit the the inverse of you, Wade. I 
liked Good Time okay. I didn't love it. I think Uncut Gems is very good, and it is going to be a a difficult sit for a lot of people, but I will say that it's two two hours and 15 minutes long, but that is that time just flew by for me just because the Safdie's filmmaking is so propulsive here. Yeah, and I, I think overall, if I had to rank them, Good Time uh, would be below Uncut Gems because there's there's oh, okay. there's so much skill that's put into this film, even though it's easier to watch Good Time. Um, there's just something, yeah. This just this experience is uh, is powerful, and I think with Good Time, Robert Pattinson's character has these moments where he at least comes across as sympathetic, and in Uncut Gems, Adam Sandler, I don't know if he ever has that moment where he comes across as a sympathetic protagonist. But what the Safdies do is they they add sympathy to his character by, by looking at the people who his failure would would affect the most. So there's this scene where he's with his son and his son starts putting the pieces together and realizes, oh, my dad is probably cheating on my mom. And the son just kind of, I don't know, we see all that kind of clicking in his brain and he just, he kind of offers that look. And he's really one of the only kids that's in <laughs> in this character's family that, that seems to actually like their father. And we see the hurt that this causes him and what it we could kind of just put together what it's going to do to him in the next couple of days next couple of weeks and so we feel for him because we feel for the people around him so i think that was a a really just kind of genius way of of making this unsympathetic character uh to help us root for this unsympathetic character because i did root for him you know the film kind of begins uh with a look at where this gem it comes from and we get the idea that exploitation is happening. Uh, Kevin Garnett, uh, who KG gives a, a really great performance. I mean, he's really good. Yeah, he's good. He uh, he pushes that towards the end. He has this great scene in the office, and he's kind of like, "What are you doing? What are you mind games?" I mean, he's just he's really good in this movie. And so we get this idea that all of his choices they're affecting people, and, and not just his family, but his employees. Uh, they're affecting. The Celtics, the Boston Celtics, they're affecting an entire town rooting for this team. They're affecting his children, and they're affecting people uh, across the world. And so we kind of get that. And then the film kind of cuts to this uh, colonoscopy. And and that's really what the film is about. It's about digging into the choices of this character and the motivations of this character. And we get someone who is making really bad decisions because he's fueled not just by greed but by pride and this desire to win and he connects that to kevin garnett and he's like you have ambition and that plays out on the basketball court i have ambition and this is how it plays out and i don't know it's definitely this really great look at a character that's more than just oh greed is bad but it's what makes us greedy 
and how does that affect the world around us? And I, I think that's really kind of a genius way of doing it. Yeah, I I really like the way the Safties are able to make you understand Howard and bring you along uh, with him as he as he does all these. The frankly, he, he's he's kind of a horrible person. He makes terrible choices. He has no self control at all, and yet the Safties are able to kind of like. Instead of being utterly repulsed by him, they bring you along with him as as he goes on this 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 in and out journey. It's almost like a roller coaster, right? Like he he gets past one obstacle, and that's the moment where you're kind of going up the hill, and then he starts talking. He opens his mouth, or he decides to you know try to uh, bet on a basketball game or something, and you kind of sense the the car of the roller coaster cresting the hill and getting ready to, you know, take that screaming dive downward again. It's it's thrilling and uh difficult and tension uh producing all at once. But throughout the the Safties aren't doing it because they made they've made you feel for Howard or they've they've used some sentimental ploy to to make you feel sorry for him. You don't feel sorry for him, but you do understand him. Sandler's performance is such that you really you you get Howard. You get why he is the way that he is, even though you totally can't condone any of the ways that he chooses to deal with that. You you understand him and you understand, like you said, the ways that his choices affect the the world around him. Not just the the people, his personal relationships, but th- like you said, there's kind of this sense, similar, I guess, to the sense I get from watching Breaking Bad, that the moral choices of one man are somehow connected to the world around him in mysterious ways. And even though we're we're we spend so much time confined so closely to Sandler's perspective, uh, that cosmic connection sense that the Safties produce is still there. And I think that's borderline miraculous. It's really interesting. And the fact that they're able to evoke that while shooting this film almost entirely in kind of this shaky, handheld, claustrophobic, close-up style is, is really something. Yeah, and then they, they kind of just have fun with it, and they have some characters locked in a glass, kind of like a glass box. And that's how I feel as I'm watching this movie. And that's where it definitely comes into the idea of experience and enjoyment. I I also think, too, there, there's really kind of something biblical about the way they portray this character. Numerous times throughout the film, you have characters who will look at something, and particularly this this rock, these gems, and the camera will sort of zoom in on their eyes and just just catch a beautiful image of their eyes lusting after this gem. And there's one shot in particular with Adam Sandler that does it, and, and another one with KG. And we get the idea that 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 they are just consumed by what's right there in front of them. And I was reminded of a passage in the book of Matthew chapter six. So it's during the Sermon on the Mount. And we have Jesus, he's talking about treasures in heaven. And then he cuts to the eyes, the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And he kind of talks about that. And then he goes, no one can serve two masters, right? You can't serve God and money. And it's easy to kind of break that apart. But 
what he's talking about is vision and our vision for the future and our vision for life and how that relates to ambition and particularly within this context, how it relates to money and how it relates to greed. And some of those ideas, some of those shots really just kind of reflect this of his, of his vision in life and his goal and understanding of the good life has corrupted him to the point that he is hurting the people around him and he's hurting, uh, he's hurting his family and he's, he's consumed by, by all of this. And then we get this, this great sort of conversation uh, he's, with his family and they're they are celebrating, I believe they're celebrating the, the Passover Seder and they're talking about the uh, the plagues in Egypt and talking about all of these plagues that God is, is really trying to tell Pharaoh, hey, like you've got to change, you've got to let my people go. Uh, and almost equating these plagues with Howard's life and as these signs, these warning signs that say, hey, you can't keep on like this. And yet at each point, he's denying that sign and saying, no, I can't. I can't keep going. Yeah, he, Howie is kind of Pharaoh in the story. He, he's constantly, the, the story of this film overall is a story of Howard again and again, hardening his heart against uh, yeah. anything mm-hmm. that doesn't get him that high of gambling or that doesn't uh, benefit him financially. There's so many points in this movie where, you know, he, he's in the scrape, he's in an argument with somebody or he's in debt to somebody. And then there's a moment where he, there, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Like if he just does this one thing, he will have the money he needs to pay off the debt. <laughs> he will have the uh the way to ask this other person for forgiveness and you're you you want him to choose that so badly and then he just goes off in another direction and he chooses not to it's utterly maddening like i feel like i'm we're not giving this film a very good sell like it sounds like a utter nightmare a chore to watch but the Safdie's filmmaking is so strong that even as you're clutching your head and going, no, Howard, why are you doing that? Make the right choice. You understand why he's not. And you're a little bit shamefully thrilled by the fact that he's not. And that's all in the, that's all in the filmmaking. And the Safdie's aren't doing this because they're, they're utterly amoral either. You do get the sense that this film is, is a film that understands how deplorable uh, Howard Ratner is. There's the a line early on in the film where uh, Howard, he, he has this black opal that he achieved illicitly from a mine. And uh, he's he's telling uh, Kevin Garnett about it. He says, they say if you look inside the, uh, the depths of this black opal, you'll see the universe. And the interesting thing about that is that in a way that's, it's almost like a Rorschach plot. Like Kevin Garnett looks into it and he sees something almost mystical. He has kind of this this weird connection to the stone that he thinks brings him good luck or, or connects him more strongly with who he needs to be. Howard sees it only as a means to an end. He sees it only as a way that he can auction it off, get money, pay off his debts, and then bet big uh, because he's used his relationship with KG in order to orchestrate and fix a sports bet. And that's just, that's the safety signaling that they, they know that there's something cosmically wrong almost with the utter focus that Howard has on just 
enriching himself and getting that next gambling high. Uh, but they aren't willing to to sermonize about it. They're just going to let it play out and let you kind of bring you along for the ride and let you witness it. And I think that's both aesthetically disciplined and also uh, sneakily discerning in, it, in its moral vision. Yeah, and it is because when you when you think about a lot of gambling movies, and one of the reasons I don't like gambling movies is because it's always like, oh no, we got ourselves into a hole. What are we going to do? We're going to gamble our way out of it, right? That, that's, <laughs> that's it. And so it's, it's almost morally dubious because these characters are gambling and they're getting in trouble and then they're gambling to get out and we're all supposed to be happy about it. Well, this film is essentially like, what if a person gambles and they get out of, like, it works out. They get some, they get some money. It goes the opposite way of what you think. And then they choose to do it again and to get themselves into more trouble. What if that were to take place? And when you reach the end of the movie, uh, you could almost guess what what this world would look like if the movie took a different turn because of the cycle that this character is is stuck in. Uh, We should probably talk about Adam Sandler. So it's easy to make fun of Adam Sandler because he plays in some really bad movies, but he is a good actor when he gets the right script and the right director. And this is a fantastic performance. And I'm trying to think of a better performance from him. I I like Punch Drunk Love, okay? Like, it's a fine film. I'm not over the moon about it. Uh, but just the energy he brings to this movie, I, I don't know. It's hard for me to think of a better movie he's played in uh, or a better performance that he's given. Uh, I think this has got to be probably his best or at least one of his best. It's it's a monumental performance, and it's it's all down to a word that you used, energy. It's just he's so keyed up this entire film and he's he's constantly got this motor mouth energy going the entire time where he's he's talking a mile a minute and it's almost like he doesn't care that anyone's listening he just needs to talk he he's got this something in him that just needs to spout off at all times and sandler really sells that not just as like this weird quirk but as a a deeply felt compulsion and i i think that's a a testament to his strength as an actor. And without that kind of secret sauce, this movie would be a lot harder to sit through. And I think that connecting that, the energy of that performance to all the other performances in this film, which uh, with the exception of Julia Fox, who plays his mistress and who also kind of has her own brand of extreme energy and uh, just almost a manic quality to her verbal, uh, the, the way that she speaks. The other characters in this film are, are whether they're aggressive toward Howie or whether they are kind of his, his friends or family or, and are a little bit more sedate. None of them really ha- meets that same energy that he has with their own kind of, uh, almost unhinged quality. And I think that, the Safties use that to show, uh, number one, just how completely off the rails he's gone, that he doesn't even seem like the same kind of person as the other people around him. And that also suggests that 
in the title sequence where we kind of zoom through this psychedelic landscape and end up in his colonoscopy. And then the closing shot, which does something similar, they suggest that that there's this this film that we've just watched is all of a piece. It's all in Howard's uh, inner universe. And there's there's something almost re- it's almost a relief to enter into that psychedelic landscape at the end of this film and kind of escape out of it. And I think that the Safdies know exactly what they're doing there. Yeah, and to this this rock uh, has that kaleidoscope feel, right? This is a film about the different facets of life, and it's entrancing even though it's not legal, right? Even though this rock was bought with blood and that's a good metaphor for Howard himself these characters know he's on a downward spiral and yet they they still want to be around him for the most part uh they they still want to be close to him they still do business with him because he's kind of like that rock he's kind of like this strange kaleidoscope character that brings some sort of energy to their life. And it's it's hard to explain. Um, and, and, and that's why I kind of go back and forth between just kind of enjoying watching him and enjoying watching this movie and also being like, oh, this is just really difficult to watch. Like when it when is this character going to make a good choice? Uh, and so I kind of go back and forth between that and ultimately I land on, this is a hard movie to watch, but there's just so much skill involved. There's so much here that, um, yeah, it's just kind of an undeniable work. It is um, a really well-made film. Yeah, it's 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 a difficult watch in the same way that a roller coaster is a difficult sit. You know, you you're in the moment you're you're terrified or you you're you're tense or you got your eyes closed or you're peeking through them through through your fingers because it's not comfortable. But when you get off the roller coaster, one of the things that might be going through your head is, man, I can't wait to get in line and ride that again. And I feel like that's sort of the ethos that the Safties bring to this film. Listeners, if you have had a chance to get on the roller coaster ride that is Uncut Gems, we'd love to hear what your reaction was to it. You can always uh, tweet us or email us, as we've said before. We want to know if this was the good kind of roller coaster for you or the bad kind. Uh, But for now, Wade, we are going to close out this first episode of the new year with our first recommendation of the new year. What do you have to recommend from the world of television or film for us this week? Well, before I go, I I need to go back to that roller coaster metaphor. I was on a ride recently with my son and I got off and I was like, wow, was that a cool ride? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, do you want to do it again? And he said, no. So maybe that's the best way to describe <laughs> Uncut Gems, at least at this time for hey, me. <laughs> you got you, you to gotta know your limits. A man's got to know his limits. Uh, yeah, so uh, the recommendation for this week. So this is actually, it, it's been talked a lot about by many, many people. We haven't talked about it on the show, but I did want to offer some, some quick thoughts. Uh, Disney's The Mandalorian. So... I did subscribe to Disney Plus primarily to watch this as well as the Imagineering story. And I got to say, after watching the eight-episode first season of The Mandalorian, I really did like it. Uh, This is one of those 
television shows that kind of t- it takes its time. It's almost meandering, and I think there's some people who really didn't like that aspect of the television show. But I liked its ability to explore new landscapes, to explore new worlds, and to even give us some standalone stories that work into the overall serial nature. So this series is about a lone bounty hunter. Uh, it takes place after the events of Return of the Jedi. And um, as many people have heard, he does come into contact with a baby version of Yoda. Same species. It's not actually Yoda, but we call him Baby Yoda just because it's... We call the, him Baby Yoda. It's just the easiest <laughs> way to describe him. Um but yeah, the series is a lot of fun, uh, and I I don't know. I just really enjoyed it, and it, it came out one every week, and there was just something fun about about spacing that out, and uh, every Friday, you know, sitting down with my son, with Priscilla, and just saying, okay, like, let's watch this. Uh, I had, yeah, I had a really good time with it, and I'm, I'm really excited about season two coming uh, later on in 2020. Yeah, uh, obviously, I've I've heard a lot about the Mandalorian. I'm I'm unlikely to ever actually see it because I'm unlikely to actually subscribe to Disney Plus. But I have heard many good things about it. And even though I haven't seen a single minute of the show, I'm all all in on Baby Yoda. Oh man, <laughs> like, he's great. He there's just he, some great. He is scenes. pretty great. <laughs> and uh, in, in fact, I I fight hard for for Baby Yoda's success in the upcoming uh, Christ and Pop Culture 25 podcast that's coming out. I'm not going to spoil whether or not Baby Yoda is actually ended up on the the list of 25 that we're going to be publishing fairly fairly soon. But just know that. Your resident uh, seeing and believing co-host did all he could to make sure that <laughs> Baby Yoda received his rightful due. Oh, no, he's, he's he's. I mean, there's this one episode where a character is looking for him on a ship, and he's going to try to capture him. And like we see him, and then the character turns around, and Baby Yoda's gone. And then he's just kind of like sneaking around and not letting this character capture him. It is just hilarious. It's just uh, it's really great. So yeah, he's he's a fantastic <laughs> character. I'm into it. Well, my recommendation for this week is uh, an f- offering from another streaming service. It's the animated film, I Lost My Body. It's a Netflix original. It's currently on the service. It's directed by uh, Jeremy Clapin, who is also the director of my favorite animated short film of all time. So I was really excited to see this movie when it first came out. Uh, I believe that I recommended that that short film on an earlier episode of the podcast. It's called Skitzine. Um, you can find it to watch for free on Vimeo if you want. But this is Clapin's uh, feature debut. And it's just this really interesting, slightly grotesque story about a, uh, a young man who loses his hand in an accident of some sort. It's not made clear at the beginning what accident that is, but his hand is severed from his body and the film basically follows his severed hand as it seeks to be reunited with his owner, with its owner, I guess, uh, by going like traveling across Paris in order to do so. It sounds very odd and it is, but what I really appreciated about this film is how it explores trauma, uh, painful histories, and uh, 
the impulse, the human impulse to sort of self-soothe by dwelling on the past. And it does this through all sorts of really interesting visual metaphors, which also, of course, include the severed hands odyssey across Paris to be reunited with the wrist that it once uh, was attached to. So I hope that 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 description is intriguing enough for a lot of people to check out because I I think it's really good. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to watch that. Hopefully I get to it before next week. It's on my list. My one question is this. Is this film really the Iron Giant 2 and the hand kind of coming back (laughs) or, or is it something different? At no point does a character make me cry by saying a single word, Superman. <laughs> so it is it is sadly not quite up to the level of the Iron Giant, but then few animated films are. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's true. Well, I, yeah, I'm going to try to get to it. Uh, it's definitely on my short list. I've got like, oh, I, I think it's like three or three more films, maybe four films that I'm going to try to knock out this week and preparation for my top 10 and things are coming together really well so i'm i'm very excited about it our listeners hopefully they're excited about next week is yours coming pretty well kevin do you have any hard choices to make uh it's it's less i'm having hard choices about what to to leave off but ordering the list has proven to be way more difficult than i I expect it normally settling on the top 10 and it is the hard part. And then I don't really have a problem with putting them in a particular numerical order for whatever reason, the opposite is true. Seems to be true this year. Uh, I've the top five ordering that I have keeps changing top 10, same deal. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I've got a few films to knock out myself. So the composition might change, uh, a film or two might sneak on there, but right now I'm just pulling my hair out over what lands at number five and what lands at number four. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I I think my top five, now I still got, you know, obviously more films to watch. I think my top five as of now is pretty much locked in. It's pretty actually pretty easy. Um, and then the back five, I could change the order, but there's a few that I'm like, ah, like the 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 nine ten slots. I'm I don't know. I'm really struggling with that, but it'll come together. It always it always does. And you know what? If in six months I want to change it, then I can do me, and I can change it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm definitely looking forward to seeing what made the cut uh, in next week's episode for sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited about that too. Listeners, make sure to tune in. We want to thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.